I'm black, you're white. Now what? What if I say the wrong thing? You probably will. Who doesn't? But I'll do my best to listen. Maybe if we're humble enough to listen to each other. Maybe if we're brave enough to lean into those difficult conversations. We might. We could. Come up with some answers. Make some real progress. Discover how much we have in common. And appreciate our differences. Now you're talking. I'm David Conley, communications consultant. And I'm Chris Thurber, clinical psychologist. Welcome to another episode of I'm Black, You're White, Now What? Um, we're going to be talking today with Montega Simmons. Uh, he's been on the front lines in, in St. Louis and nationally uh, dealing with a whole lot of social justice issues. Um, and we're going to be kind of talking to him about a myriad of those and his perspective on everything from um, police violence uh, to the defund the police and Black Lives Matter. And just uh, he's got a very interesting perspective and a really long history in, in dealing with uh, social justice. And so we'll let him talk a little more about himself in just a minute. But, Chris, before we get started, I kind of want to throw back like we do sometimes to uh, the episode prior where we got to talk to uh, Jacob and to Dacha about uh, just racism on campus and just their different points of view uh, and dealing in, in dealing with that. And I just I was really like impressed with both men and inspired by them uh, and just by, you know, their, their different perspectives, which were kind of similar but also you know different experience wise yeah. but just also the the sort of hope that they both had you know uh going forward it, it encouraged me that you know things may seem a little dark and bleak now but you know with young men like them yeah um it's it's a, a po more positive outcome as possible I guess is what I'm saying. yeah I, I think david i mean it was a kick for both of us to be able to have our uh, sons on the show and mm -hmm. like you I felt that neither of them has given up hope and they're both actively involved in different ways mm -hmm. in social justice I also was pained by the points where they have both felt a bit paralyzed in mm -hmm. stepping out of their race um, for Jacob mm -hmm who spoke really eloquently about sometimes not being seen as an individual, but as a, as a trope or as a, as mm -hmm. a representative of all black people. So being, as he often was at Marist school, the only black student in the class and people turning to him and saying, well, so what's the black perspective? Or maybe they weren't even right. that explicit, but they felt as Jacob relayed, that once they'd asked him a question, then they could check the box. Okay, I'm, mm -hmm. you know, I've done the equitable thing. And, you know, clearly he wants to be seen as an individual, as an artist, not as right. a representative. And for Dacha um, to be paralyzed for a different reason as a white kid, having been made more aware of the things that potentially... Uh, he contributed to in making somebody feel uncomfortable or or acting in a biased way that um, he's desperately seeking specific feedback on, but because of the anonymity of Instagram accounts like at mm -hmm. Black at Exeter, he he's not able to uh, make amends or or know mm -hmm. any specifics, but neither neither of our sons 
has let those things discourage them. They're they're marching on. So happy to have heard about. But I also thought just to to um, you know put I guess a bow on the thing uh, where the impetus that Dacha felt to address an issue that he became aware of was very encouraging mm. to me because most of the time people seem to stop at, oh, they're just kind of complaining, you know. And so the fact that that he is so moved about, um, you know, like mm. and, and frustrated that he wants to, to address it, um, clarify where he may have been coming from or, or even see if it was him at all, you know, um, was encouraging to me. I, yeah. I think that if we had more people who did that and then had the conversations like we're trying to model on and, and talk about and discuss on this show, that things would probably be a lot better because people could communicate whatever these issues, whatever things they're feeling and resolve them because there, there can be no resolution without having, you know, like some, some serious pointed, um, yeah. equitable discussion about it. You know, it's just the, so the fact that that he wanted to take that step to do it was, like I said, another thing that was encouraging to me about it. But then what was beautiful, and then we'll go and I mean, we can just have Montega here because he's pretty. We'll we'll talk to him in just a second. But what was beautiful is that even when he brought up the concern, then there was conversation from Jacob about like framing the reason that the the account exists, what it does for the people who feel marginalized and in, in giving them that voice, but also some words about what he could do that would help the situation in general. And I, like yeah. I said, the fact that they could have that conversation between the two of them, um, I like I, I just was very, very encouraged when I got off the phone and, and uh, I'll say the call rather. And uh, Jacob and I had uh, great discussions about it, and he was, you know, even more encouraged during our our offline conversation. Oh, that's great. Now show, I can't so, wait for our, yeah. our boys to meet in person. And Dacha, I think, was very, uh, I would say, soothed by mm -hmm. Jacob saying the specifics are something that you need to get past. And no, there isn't the opportunity for redress or making amends about anything in particular if this has raised your awareness and if going forward you're uh, additionally sensitive it will have served its purpose and you should take comfort in that so mm -hmm. uh, and i'm eager to hear what uh, mr simmons has to say about all of this and and i will ask you montego when you unmute yourself go ahead and keep yourself unmuted for the entire episode that makes it much easier in the audio editing but uh i'll let david introduce you and then so excited that you're able to join us today. And as someone who's very much on the front lines of so much, I want to hear more about what you do and how both black people and white people and brown people and every person you encounter is responding to some of the energy that you're putting into social justice. So I'm ready to listen. And so with that, I will say, um, I have known uh, Montega Simmons for uh, more years than I care to admit because it will start telling my age. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, 
but you know, I knew him, let's say before that, that, uh, beard. And so, uh, you know, it, was, it was years ago. And even back then, uh, he was always, um, had a mind and a heart for people, uh, and for justice and, and for activism. And, uh, I think it's kind of on, on that ground, uh, that he and I formed a friendship and we've had some fantastic uh, discussions, eye opening for me, mm. um, you know, probably, um, sleep father for him as far as like, you know, anything I would have to say, but he's, uh, he's always been an inspiration to me. And, um, I, I don't know that I've ever said that to his face, but, um, but that's the truth. So I'm very excited to have him, uh, be a guest on the show and to introduce him to you, Chris, and, uh, to hear, uh, some of his thoughts about, you know, what we're going to be talking about uh, today. So, Montego, without further ado, uh, welcome. And uh, if you would just, because I wouldn't do it justice, uh, do us the honor of just kind of telling folks as much as you can in a few minutes uh, what you've been involved in and, and the road that you've been on, uh, you know, all of this time for 20 plus huh? years. I will do my best. Uh, first and foremost, thank you to you both. Um, it, it's good to meet you, Chris, and it's an honor to see you again, David. Um, mm. I share your feelings, um, and David wouldn't say so himself, but honestly, he also was um, contributed more than a bit, uh, whether it was through martial arts, through theater, um, through just friendship in terms of um, well offering guidance and grounding. Um, and in some ways, especially during that period, some discipline. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm really thankful uh, to be in relationship again. So first and foremost, I'm a native St. Louisan, uh, born and raised. Uh, my current work is in and around movements. I would talk about myself as an organizer and a strategist. Um, I do tend to work at the front lines of various phases uh, or lanes of movement and transformation work, um, whether that's actually trying to transform um, our the way that justice is administered or to repair some of the damage that's uh, historically been brought against our communities. Mm. Um, yeah, let, let, let's stop there. Um, mm -hmm. I will say, if you want to know who I rock with, I am part of the, the group of folks that exist in the ecosystem called the Movement for Black Lives. Um, that's largely like an umbrella ecosystem of both organizations, organizers, activists who actually are moving this work throughout the country and actually international at this point. So, Montego, one of the things that I wanted to ask you, and so grateful that you made the time to be our guest today, David and I have spoken with each other and with some of our guests about this hashtag defund the police, which I understand is much more about channeling funds to increase community policing, to increase training and education for both uh, the public as well as law enforcement. So this is a vast oversimplification and I'm not a marketing specialist, but it is an easily misunderstood mm -hmm. phrase, which is now being used 
I think for the opposite purpose to say, well, uh, or I don't know if it's the opposite purpose, but to incite fear. Well, if you mm -hmm. support defund the police, good luck calling 911 because no one's going to answer. What's your understanding of this and how can we help listeners and viewers have a different understanding than they might? Okay. And I've, I've dropped a tool in the chat that you guys can, as you're Thank you. uh, sharing this with folks, it will offer some images and stuff you can use to help explain it. That's great. Um, so the concept of defund the police um, is one that I think folks have actually been nourishing for at least like the last maybe five to six years. Um, mm -hmm. It comes out of, in part, like our experiences since not only like the death of Mike Brown, but say the death of Trayvon Martin, and so many lives that have been lost over the course of this decade, and let alone decades well before now. And so many attempts have actually already been made to begin to transform or reform policing. Um, and to name explicitly, like in St. Louis, like one of the remedies that we talked about uh, was, okay, maybe if we have body cameras, like maybe that would actually encourage better behavior. But then what we found instead was we start seeing murders on cameras. So it didn't mm. stop the murders. Um, that's one lane that this, this is a response to just say, how are we actually beginning to stop it? It's a recognition that one, investing in the institution itself is not helping. Um, but if we're really talking about making communities more safe, there has been a consistent tradition of divesting of certain things. Like when we talk about defund education, folks know exactly what we're talking about. And at this point, education has been defunded. Mental health support has been defunded. Uh, support for folks on substance abuse has been defunded. We're saying divest money that's actually been going into police and invest in things that would actually keep people safe, whether it's that or affordable housing um, that gives people stability or worker centers that can actually help folks find jobs. Those are the things that begin to abate what we're seeing in terms of community violence. And I'll name that explicitly, like with St. Louis. St. Louis is a violent place to live. But part mm -hmm. of that is directly rooted in the fact that many folks either don't have jobs, they have unstable housing, they may not have access to quality food, um, and they don't, in fact, have an ability to thrive. We're asking, like, the full slogan is defund the police and invest in Black communities. And mm -hmm. it's actually attempting to repair uh, much of the damage that we've seen done. So let me ask you, because when we had uh, John Leggett, Officer John Leggett on the show, uh, he was very gracious to talk to us about this particular issue. And one of the things he was saying is that, OK, say they have a budget and 10 percent of that budget, I believe, was his uh, his number. I'm, I hope I'm quoting him right, uh, is for equipment, et cetera. But the other 90 percent is uh, for salaries and things like that. And. If you start cutting funding, you are essentially taking officers off the streets, streets that you both say uh, are dangerous for the same reasons. Like he cited a lot of the same reasons that you were saying. So he's saying that you are then taking these officers off the street, which I think is the fear of a lot of people. And it's certainly the fodder for a lot of the political campaigns that if you defund the police, uh, you're essentially weakening the police force 
um, and any response they would have to uh, the murderous hordes that would be taking over and burning down stores and uh, raping and pillaging, uh, you know, members of the community or whatever. There's one commercial I actually saw where they have literally, and you may have seen it, have an old lady sitting uh, in her living room, and while she's watching the thing about the defund the police, a criminal is breaking into her house, and she's trying to call, but nobody's answering because... And and so that's kind of uh, the images that came to mind when John uh, was saying, if you cut this budget, you take these cops off the street, and so therefore that's this issue. And so I was wondering, because what I'm hearing you say sounds counter to that, can you tell me how what you're saying is counter to that? Like, how how will it not do that? Like, how if I'm a person who's afraid that when I call 911, I won't get any sort of answer uh, if you defund the police, you know, how, yeah. how, what do you have, what do you say to that? Let's, let's step into that place. I mean, right now, unfortunately, we've gotten to a place where people call 911 for everything. If you're mm -hmm. having a mental health emergency, you call 911, police aren't showing up as trained social workers or somebody who can actually help navigate somebody who's going mm -hmm. through a mental health crisis. What we have mm -hmm. seen is people get confronted, like just what happened in Rochester, New York, and may end mm -hmm. up getting killed. Mm -hmm. um, what we're saying is literally over maybe the last 30 or 40 years, police has literally, policing has become the answer for everything. Mm -hmm. And as a result, like in the city of St. Louis and in many cities around the country, policing takes up more than 50% of the budget, where I know health and human services are t is less than 1%, mm, which means wow. that if we begin to decrease that budget, part of what can happen is we can actually provide jobs for social workers. We can actually provide jobs for more jobs counselors. We can actually mm -hmm. invest again in affordable housing. And that means construction jobs. It means layers of opportunities, but it's spending money differently. Uh, the issue has been, and the example had been that for police, uh, police are a hammer, and to them, everything looks as a nail. Uh, they only really have one means of solving problems, and that's arrest or detain and or kill, um, mm -hmm. because they don't shoot to wound, they shoot to kill. Um, honestly, especially over the last, honestly, over this whole summer, We've seen countless examples of where that may or may not be true. I'm thinking mm -hmm. about Portland explicitly, where mm -hmm. we see an example of someone literally gets shot seven times in front of his kids. Mm -hmm. And then the same police department, after a white teenager shoots two people with an AR, walks mm -hmm. down the street and can't get anybody to arrest him. Um, so there's so many contradictions with one, the way the police are actually showing up in communities. Um, but at the same time, we, we're facing a reality where state violence has become endemic. And it's something that literally seems to be pointed in one direction. So the campaign to defund is specifically an attempt to repair uh, both the explicit damage that we see being caused by the way that policing has been implemented, mm -hmm. but also by consistent divestment in so many things in our community that could actually ground folks and keep them safe in a real way. Mm -hmm. So I, I have a very... First of all, thank you for that clarification. And my question is, do you think that people are smart enough to be drawn to the root causes of these things? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. I, 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 anyone who 
including me, who hears somebody ask that question, says, damn, you are arrogant. That's just, I mean, I, but I don't know any other way to ask it because yeah. there, and I, you know, I'm a mental health professional myself. I treat the symptoms that people are suffering with, but mm -hmm. I, am not involved in some of the root causes of their mental illness. So some of it's genetic and I can't do anything about that. Some of it is their upbringing and I can have some limited influence on that. And some of it's more sociological and uh, besides uh, voting, I can't do much about that. And, and I can't wait to get to, you know, talk about your work with, you know, voting, but I honestly, wonder how do people respond when you explain as you just did we've got to look at the root causes of the some of the reasons why people are calling the police in the first place and fix those problems not keep asking the police who as you said have you know a as we all do, a limited repertoire of responses, but in this case, responses that are not, uh, I mean, to say it's not helping is, some of the things they do are extraordinarily but helpful, appropriate. but a lot of it is, you know, violent and destructive, and so it's not anything that anybody wants, but are people smart enough to get that argument? I will say yes, and honestly, I think it's changed dramatically just over the last six years. That's so good um, to hear. Yeah, like we first began this conversation explicitly like this, um, releasing it in a platform in 2016. Um, mm -hmm. Like, and that was in the wake of Ferguson, Baltimore, all those uprisings that happened. And you saw like the rollout of trainings and body, body cameras and things that really didn't stop or change behavior. Um, the platform explicitly says we want to divest from these things and invest in other things. And I think that language was honestly just, it was too wonky. It, it was too policy heavy. Um, and for some folks, like that's good, especially for folks that are actually working on legislation, whether in the state house or federal legislation, they need that. They need it framed so they can actually um, make it real in terms of policies. But what we're seeing now is more and more people are not only like beginning to digest what it means, but we've seen it actually in the streets. Like this has been like the largest wave of resistance and protests in American history um, with numbers that no one would have dreamed of. Honestly, even in January of this year, it was beyond our imagining. Um, and that's because many people are. Now, that said, like, I do want to acknowledge that first folks that are directly involved in policing and in the administration of, uh, of, of criminal justice, uh, they do have a problem because it does strike right at the heart of whether it's their income, but it's also their understanding of the way these structures work. Um, but also, there are just folks who are afraid. And they are in a space where when they think of safety, safety is equated to police and policing mm -hmm. and police power. Um, we're trying to transform that um, and hopefully get people to a space of, of dreaming. And one thing that I point back to, like even in 2014, 
I didn't have the space to dream like that. The most radical thing I could think of with policing was civilian oversight. Yeah, we're going to do that. And yeah, give them cameras, give them training, uh, but we're going to get oversight. And I really almost believe like that would give us a level of control we needed. And in practice, we find out that is not true. Um, if we're really talking about dreaming of ways where our community to thrive, we have to go beyond the pale. And there are resources, meaning that you no longer have the excuse of claiming broke. We know there's money. You find it every year to put in police forces. We're asking you to move that money over here where we know it can explicitly make someone else safe. Giving someplace a safe place where they can actually bed down for the night, that's, that's real. Giving someplace uh, someone access to quality food or a stable job or access to controlled substance abuse. That stuff really, one, it stabilizes folks, it changes their trajectory, but it also makes the entire community safe. Everybody that's gonna touch those folks will be safer than they were before they got access to these things. Mm. But let me ask you, so, and, and this is just me thinking while I'm listening to you, even if I make the, the people more stable, and, and let me preface this by saying, especially considering the number of friends that I have in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. I am by no means trying to blanket everybody in law enforcement as, as you know, uh, somebody who is very violent and looking to exact violence on the community they serve. There are a lot of people who are doing really good police work uh, out here and, and, and take protect and serve to heart. That being said, I'm saying if, if, there's a thing you brought up martial arts earlier. There's a, a, a thing that I learned a long time ago where they said when you get to fighting, the person can only rise to the level of training. Oh. So if if my training has taught me to handle situations a certain way, even if you limit those situations that I get called to respond to, I am going to respond to them in a limited way I have a set you know a b or c as far as like how I deal with it. so is there a, a a middle ground that can be found in um in improving the training that you and I'm I'm asking that because I, I think came to mind when we shot uh this movie Father's Day a little while ago there's a, a piece we put on the end of it where we had a great conversation with Doc Thurber here and we also talk with law enforcement uh, people from across the country. And one of the guys was saying that before he had a certain way that he handled things because he had been trained to handle them that way. But then he had gone through an extensive amount of training. Uh, and I'm not sure if the department had mandated it or this was something he did on his own. I want to say his particular department mandated it. But um it was a training that he did specifically to deal with mental health issues. And when he got called to those, he now had a different protocol that he didn't have before that resulted in him having a lot more positive outcome when he was dealing with uh, those particular calls. So that came to mind while you're talking. And I'm saying, is there some sort of middle ground that we can get to where we just change the way we're training law enforcement. We just change the way that they get trained to deal with people and, and, and things across the board to where it's it's not just detain and, you know, kill and whatever, where um, 
you know, where rules of engagement switch. Um, is there a way to, to, to do that? And, and that might make everybody, you know, like comfortable on, on both sides. I don't know. I'm asking what you yeah. think. So I have two lines that I'm thinking around this. Um, one is the things that we're asking for in terms of behavior. They already know how to do it. Like they mm-hmm. have rules that say, like the escalation of force should progress like this. And not only do they know how to do it, in other communities, it's exactly how it's executed. Mm-hmm. That, that actually took me aback um, in 2015, like right in the wake of Ferguson. Uh, many of us went directly to our state uh, legislature and we actually brought proposed legislation around specific rules that we wanted to see. Well, we, went, we were assigned to the public safety committee and lo and behold, the vast majority of those folks were former police officers and or police chiefs. And they said, you know what? We already have that. We've got mm. that. We've got wow. that. We've got wow. this. We do this. Wow. Mm. So part of what we learned is there is a vast difference in the way these things are implemented when we're talking about specific populations. When we're talking mm. about poor, black, brown uh, folks, policing shifts and become something different. And that's in part because of the way that policing developed. Remember, it didn't just come out of the English Commonwealth. It also has roots both in restraining labor actions and explicitly in tracking and capturing slaves. Um, Mm -hmm. And that is still deeply embedded in police culture. And you hear it and you see it in the way that not only uh, the broad police force, but in the way the police unions in the function. Mm -hmm. Like they don't function like traditional unions. They actually tend to function more like boys club. And that means that regardless of the truth of what happens, we're gonna do whatever we need to to insulate. Mm-hmm. Um, now with that, I do wanna pivot like to, like I think the moment that we're actually in, and this is a place that really frightens folks. And uh, the example that, that came to mind, I don't know if, uh, I know David was a Trekkie at one point. I don't know if you still are, if you watch mm-hmm. Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, movie, I... yeah, one of the movies from the original cast was like the Undiscovered Country. Um, mm-hmm. It was when uh, like literally it was, it, it set them up to approach Kittimer and mm-hmm. neither Kirk or the Klingons were really ready to let go of the state of war and the formation they had been in because it was so constant. That's the tipping point that I think we've received. Like we're Mm -hmm. at a place where we have to think about the administration of justice legally. We can't always think about it in terms of guns, in terms of cages. Um, We have to, we can do better. We have the means Mm -hmm. to do better. And honestly, we owe it to people who live in these communities to do better. It's a scary thought and it's hard to not only let go of the paradigm of policing, but to, to reckon with the fear that we hold absent that being out there for us to call to, but it's something we have to do and it's a hard place. And I think that also is part of the tension we're seeing in the streets, like we're at a tipping point. And that means like, at some point, some people are gonna have to let go of the paradigms that we've leaned on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's stretching my thinking in, in, in ways that it hasn't been stretched before, Montega. And I'm reminded of what David said a few minutes ago how striking it was and I was watching television with my younger son when the footage 
from, let's see, the, now I'm going to forget the date, but um, this, this young man, white man, after having discharged his weapon and killed people, is mm. walking down the street with this, you know, AK-47 or whatever it was, assault rifle, and Sava, my 15-year-old, said that would never happen if that kid was black. That, that he would just be, I mean, here, here is a wave of police kind of jogging down the street in response to the call that someone has been shot. And here's a guy that's armed who potentially was the person who shot them. And they're just walking by him. That's the height of contradiction. And and as as you're saying, and and, and it has nothing at all to do with the kind of training we imagine, you know, police are getting. So say more about the, you know, the height of contradiction and what your reaction to seeing that was. Um, I mean, in my mind, it's saying that if we're relying on police, not only to respond to these things, but to stop them, like to see one, how they portrayed how they be- how they behave with somebody who was clearly not a threat, and mm. then the way they clearly just ignored someone walking down the street, and honestly, in this case, was attempting to surrender. He had mm-hmm. the AR in one hand and had his hands up. Um, mm-hmm. When I talk about the contradiction, like it, it, go back to martial arts, it's when Yang becomes Yin and Yin is becoming Yang. Mm-hmm. It's like it's mm-hmm. revealing like the truth of the moment in terms of like what police are and what they're not. Um, they rarely solve crimes in our community. They rarely stop crimes in our community. Um, like if we're lucky every now and then they can show up and maybe um, the best of those, like David mentioned, can show up and definitely deescalate and they can do more. But unfortunately it's a rarity for, what, for how we see them show up. Um, I don't think, honestly, it took me a long time to really reckon with that reality and I think the first time it really like nailed home. And I say that as somebody who I've been interacting with police since I was like 13 years old as well, mm-hmm. like walking home from school, them stopping me, but it never actually struck me like what they actually do until we were working the polls one election. And mm-hmm. there was a, a guy who was walking down the block and he came by the first time. He's like, okay, I'm going to come back. I got to go do this. And I'm going to come back. And then he started approaching and there had been police circling the block and they saw him and grabbed him before he could mm-hmm. actually go vote. And we're, we're, we're trying to figure out like how and why. And we just literally had cameras trained on. And it was just little harassment. But that's what the people in the community is like, man, this happens every day. This is what we mm-hmm. deal with. Now, there had been thefts. There had been break-ins. There had been uh, countless other acts of violence, but they weren't investigating that. They were literally patrolling, looking for people to harass and find a reason to take into chains, arrest, and take back. That's the way that they've been deployed and the way they practice in these communities. And it stands in direct contradiction to the way we see them deployed mm-hmm. and act in other contradictions, in other, uh, in other jurisdictions. So we know yeah. they can do better, yeah. And that is one hopeful thing is that I think we, you know, human beings have tremendous capacity to learn, to adjust, to 
um, to make progress. And I'm encouraged by some of your ideas for making that happen. In the, in the very short term for this upcoming election, based on your experience, what, what can we do to, you know, because I know from reading your biography that you've been involved in empowering underrepresented communities, including a lot of black people to have access and not be harassed and not, you know, to be able to vote, which is, you know, that's their right. And, you know, David knows, like, don't get me going on the current administration or I'll, I'll mm. consume the rest of the show. But instead, can you can you tell us some about what you've done and what anyone could do between now and early November to ensure that the maximum number of people of any color have unfettered access to a poll or an absentee ballot? Sure. Um, so honestly, like throughout the course of this year, I've been through my regular work with the Movement Voter Project. Uh, I'm actually the director of local justice, which means that I identify organizations uh, in different cities around the country who are working together uh, to transform their criminal legal system. Uh, interventions that could be progressive prosecutors or trying to defeat or replace a sheriff or judges. So in cities like Detroit and uh, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, uh, several places around Florida and even in St. Louis, uh, we supported them in those campaigns. A big chunk of those campaigns was community education and engagement. Okay. Um, now this is all happening on the landscape of both COVID and the tensions that we've seen over the summer. Uh, so part of what we had to recognize is that this is not a year where you're going to see the normal uh, voter programs that roll out. But what we've learned over time is that people that have been activated and will show up because you asked them to are also more likely to vote. Um, and yeah, so part of what we're seeing is one, there's going to be a big wave, uh, a push to get people to show up and, and show up in spite of the fear uh, to vote and participate. Um, the other thing that I point to that is in play, uh, like when we talk about defund, we're not just talking about it as an abstract concept uh, for people to, to look at, but we're also talking about policies and legislation. Um, one that was rolled out, I want to say mid to early August, has been the Breed Act. Um, it begins to make real what we're talking about in terms of divestment and repairing some of the harm. Um, so one, it's actually sponsored by Ayanna Presley and Rashida Tlaib. Um, and in addition to what we're seeing federally, we're also beginning to see folks mirror that legislation in local jurisdictions. Like I know they're modeling it already in Illinois, and there's some folks here in Kentucky who are talking about it and some other states. Um, so yeah, I mean, honestly, the biggest thing we can do is one, talk to our folks and make sure they know that it's urgent, mm -hmm. that they do vote. But beyond that, to participate, like we need your voices, even more importantly, the day after election than we do to show up on election day. I'm going to tell you, my concern with the voting part is that that fear is is powerful. 
And I think that there are a lot of people who hear a slogan like defund the police and some other things and see some of these images, no matter. Now, I'm thinking when I'm watching it, so I think, well, this is ridiculous, of course. That's not what that means, et cetera. But, you know, in this soundbite uh, society, I think a lot of people hear that. I think a lot of people hear some of the other, you know, like fear mongering that's going on and they will vote based on that fear. So I guess my question to you is how can like we phrase things, for instance, like defund the police or, or other things in a way that does not send that fear in a way that 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 eases that fear, but also puts, uh, I guess, more comfort in that progressive thought and in other progressive thoughts than the fear that's in the in the more, for lack of a better term, conservative thought. Does that make sense? Right. Like, yeah. like yeah. what can we, what can we do to stop, stop that fear? Because like one of the commercials I've seen where they talk about how, you know, you got all this rioting, looting, and, and people doing all this, and and you know this candidate is not strong enough to to do that or whatever. And so, you know, I'm saying, man, but this is happening on your watch. And so Thank if it's you, happening yeah. on your watch, I'm kind of concerned about why we're shifting it to whether he should say something or not. What are you doing? You know what I mean? Right. So I know that people in general, a lot of times are not asking those questions. Instead, they're okay. saying, yeah, I'm afraid. So they go and they do this thing out of fear, whether it makes sense or not. And I think that that somehow there needs to be a counter narrative that is as digestible and so i'm guess yeah. i'm asking what do, what do you think about that is there something that we can do or say to folks when we're trying to energize them to go vote uh, yeah. to let them know that what they're doing is the right thing well so one thing when we're talking about the top of the ticket like mm -hmm. neither one of them are actually deeply aligned with the concept of fund of defund the police um mm -hmm. So neither one of their aisles. So I think the the candidate that you're that you're concerned about, um, I think he's working to communicate to, especially I'd say the most conservative of those folks mm -hmm. who would normally be with him. Um, but then there are those of us who are one already kind of beginning to organize ourselves to mm -hmm. to work as a united front to mm -hmm. begin deep, a deep level of engagement and talk about how other things have already been defunded. Like if you want money to really uh, get quality education, it's there. That's what we're talking about. If you want affordable housing, that's what we're talking about. If you want access to quality jobs, this is what we're talking about. Um, so we're actually working on that as well. Um, some of that I'll say, I, I, until like this year and really more or less like this spring and summer, our communications had only really been talking to most of I would say what we call the left, uh, those mm -hmm. people who are already looking for radical change. And now more folks are actually listening than ever. And whereas, honestly, even those folks on the left take, took some years to move, um, it's going to take some time yeah. to move folks in the center um, mm -hmm. so that they're not afraid. And at the core of my being, I share your fear um, mm -hmm. just because we know it's still possible that things will remain unchanged after November. And that scares yeah. the devil out of me. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm also holding some hope that what you named before, that enough people recognize that the reality that we're facing now 
is directly the responsibility of the current uh, person sitting in, the, in, in that seat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Organizers are innovating uh, and getting creative. Yeah. And beyond the organizers, honestly, the streets are creating and getting innovative. Yeah. Like I'm seeing it every front I look like no one is sitting on the sidelines. It's just, mm -hmm. uh, honestly, we have to create some means to make sure folks can get there safely. And whether we're talking mm -hmm. about co uh, COVID or honestly, the real intangible threat of malicious, um, yeah. we have to figure that out. What what charges you, Montego? What what motivates you to to do this work? Because it's it's so important and also moves, you know, in fits and starts. And there must be times when you feel like this is grinding so slowly, and other times when you're excited about progress. But where does your motivation to be a movement leader come from? It's hard. <laughs> it's it's, it's mm. deeply hard. Um, it doesn't come without its scars. Sometimes they show up like the great beard. Um, <laughs> sometimes they manifest much more deeply. Um, for me, I find a lot of hope and resilience in like newer, younger voices. Like mm. I'm seeing people who were in middle school and high school, like in 2014, show up and show out with analysis and language well beyond their years and well beyond mm -hmm. anything I would have had at that age. And they're ready to leave and they're doing it without fear. Um, like I, for me, I have to say like, if they are actually gonna show up, especially after I know they've been in the streets so many hours and they're still showing mm -hmm. up for the meeting the next day, I gotta do the same thing. Uh, my lane's mm -hmm. definitely gonna be different than it was during the first phase, but I have to do my best to give them everything I got and support them. That's a beautiful thing. Let me ask you, you so this show is I'm Black, You're White. I'm just curious because uh, a lot of what we're talking about, uh, people might make the assumption that, that it's only uh, for and about you know Black people, involving Black people. I'm just wondering if you can speak to um, like any involvement of of white people in this movement or how how are people dealing with it being just a human issue or does it straight come down uh along racial lines and and the only people you see actively involved are, are black people and and that's it it is absolutely not just black people involved like even when we talk about the uprisings in ferguson and cities like Baltimore, like we were only able to do what we did because we had uh, co-conspirators and, and family members that were white that were also working in those spaces. Um, I think the other reality that's really set in, and there was a good piece that just landed, I wanna say it was in the Atlantic, um, mm -hmm. that says America or the US may finally be a majority anti-racist country, mm -hmm. meaning that Folks are tipping to a space where they recognize that it's enough. It's not enough to just say I'm not racist, but we have to actually overtly begin to resist and yeah. to counter mm -hmm. uh, racism. Mm -hmm. And I think that's happening. Mm -hmm. um, and many of those folks are the folks that you see taking the streets. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the difference in this moment than what we've seen before, though, is that they're very intentional about taking black leadership. And I know that was mm -hmm. true there, and it's very true showing up. You're in Louisville, where I am right now. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's the difference. But they're leading under a banner that says 
that we are anti-racist, meaning that we're directly confronting and trying to deconstruct uh, racism and white supremacy. And these are white folks that are doing that. Yeah, I think, you know, even Kendi's book is something that a lot of my white friends and I have read. And that's part of, of course, you know, his message and being an anti-racist is uh, not enough to do the way that I was brought up. Uh, Your only responsibility, Chris, is to, you know, treat people fairly and not use the N-word. If only, right? If if it were just that Mm -hmm. simple, that was, you know, that simple. And then and then the world will be a happy place. So, um, you know, fortunately, I think beginning when I was an undergraduate, I sort of realized there's a whole lot more to social justice than that. Mm -hmm. And I saw it in a lot of different forms, even more, I would say, um, disturbingly than I have, uh, than I had at the time witnessed anti-black racism. I was, you know, seeing horrible anti-Semitism, sexism, uh, did a lot around toxic masculinity as a graduate student and since then. Um, But I credit David for really helping open my eyes up to some of the, and, and, and many of our guests on the show, to some of the more insidious and institutional forms of racism. And also, of course, to David's question and your response, what are the things that people can do about it? And it is encouraging for me to hear you say that a lot of the people you encounter are are young and articulate and insightful and ready to do more than just what I was ready to do at that age, which was um, try to be fair and not use the N-word, right? Absolutely. Let me ask you, Montague, and I want—I don't want you to get away. Uh, I know we're getting close to close, so I don't want you to get away before I ask this question. And as um, I'm, I'm asking it in the voice of people who have said similar things to me. So you know me, so you know I don't mean it's like it sounds. But why can't y'all do all the protesting without burning stuff down and tearing up stuff and all the wanton violence? I mean, whatever happened to peaceful protests and Martin Luther King. Why, you know what I mean? What's up with all the, what's up with all the burning down the neighborhood? Mm-hmm. So I think my first response to the piece on peaceful protest, mm-hmm. honestly, is rarely the protesters who initiate the violence. Come um, brother, come on. For us, yeah, for us, when we first touched down, uh, outside of a vigil, we found an MRAP in the street, police mm-hmm. with heavy artillery, uh, and shooting tear gas. And that's been the provocateur. That That's where the violence began to start. Um, in terms of things like burning down, like one, everybody's not the same. And one thing I've learned is that I, I can't like tell people what their form of resistance is to be. I try and organize and, you know, and keep people safe as best I can. But when somebody comes to this realization that these things exist in my community, and they are more destructive than they're good. And it's been draining from our community and they want to act, they want to do whatever they need to do 
it's not for me to police that behavior. Uh, even though, yeah, I am going to work to try and keep people safe and organized and moves toward strategic goals and objectives, et cetera. But folks will resist. And folks will, that resistance, like, there is no dictating what that can look like. Um, mm -hmm. In this moment, like, transformation means that some things have to be destroyed. Um, and let's be clear. Like, I know John Lewis, like, in, in his, in his uh, last final years, he talked about peaceful protests. But we look back at Montgomery and Selma, those things weren't that peaceful. Those things were not that peaceful. And in many cases, the peace did not, the breaking of the police of the peace didn't come from them. It again came from those they were actually in confrontation against. Um, mm. And the same is true right now. Uh, unfortunately, I think that narrative may take another 20, 40 years before it mm. is truly recognized. Yeah. But the same is very true. No one normally hits the streets uh, with whatever protest activity, like literally running toward police with batons. That's, that's almost never the case. Mm -hmm. No, and a lot of times that's missed because what happens is, uh, you know, then the, the cameras kick on, uh, you know, after like two or three beats oh. uh, after the song is started. And yeah. then they want to say, you know, that's the, that's how it is, and here's the one, you know, that kicked it off, and they're singing it, and that's what it's all about. And this uh, shifting of the narrative, and and that's the thing too. We were talking about things that concern us. This shifting of the narrative, uh, which is happening all over the place, like when we start talking about um, uh, the Colin Kaepernick uh, uh, protests, and how that narrative got shifted to. Uh, anti-patriotism as opposed to what he was really protesting and this thing with uh, you know protesting now the narrative for that is being shifted we never deal with what the protest is about the narrative is being shifted to uh, violence and calling that lawlessness not like uh, like people just decide you know everything is fine but I'm just gonna go and and start, you know, looting and pillaging and doing whatever and that and making it seem like that's what it's about. And and that kind of hijacking of the narrative is uh, destructive, irritating, uh, scary, Absolutely. demeaning, you know, all of those yeah. things. And so um, it's interesting. But, I mean, now, you know, Montague, you see why David and I need to co-host a show like this, because I I have the same question. I can't ask you that question. David can ask you that question. But I'll tell you the question that I, you know, I can ask my white friends, like, or the way that I can respond when, without any of our black friends around, they ask me that, like, what's the deal here? Like, so, I, and David's heard me say this before, but I've asked them, go, you know, go back on YouTube and I want you to look at how many Super Bowl parade parties mm. spun out into people lighting tires on fire and flipping over exactly. cars. Like, and forget the color of people's skin uh, yeah. when you do this little investigation, but exactly what you said, Montega, like you can't, um, number one, characterize, uh, you know, a movement by the actions of a few and it's apparently not uncommon, even when people are in a really good mood to celebrate right. something that their favorite team did, that, you know, a little bit of alcohol and a little bit of, you know, 
uh, fringy behavior on the side, people are emboldened. And that's, I mean, that's human nature. So they, that's a little bit of a head scratcher for them. And then I say, you know, what about the Boston Tea Party, right? Which, uh, you know, bunch of intoxicated white guys dressed, um, I mean, we'll do a different episode on cultural appropriation, but (laughs) dressed as indigenous people, uh, and nobody was killed in the Boston Tea Party, but, you know, lots of things were, to your point, destroyed. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure not everyone holds this opinion, but that was, that, that is often in history classes, Celebrate first graders, second graders, yeah, as like, wow, look at you know, look at this. We really, we really should be, um, you know, proud of these people who stood up for something they believed in, and and I think they're they're probably right to say that. And now, you know, destroying things like, I mean, I'm sure in 2020 dollars, the the Wendy's that got burned down was not worth nearly as much as the tea from three, you know, frigates or whatever they were called, tall ships that were full of, you know, tea. So come on, uh, people just kind of forget what kind of crisis brings about change. And yeah, and this is still an American tradition. This is in the mm-hmm. deepest mm-hmm. tradition of how we actually gain both democracy and freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So close us. But up. the other thing oh, is, ahead, I'm ahead. sorry, right quick. No. I was just going to lastly say as for uh, for that is and then we'll close out. But the other thing is um, the uncomfortable truth is that whether you agree with it or would do it or not, it is an expression of generations of frustration and anger behind the same thing that by shifting the narrative, we are still not listening to. It just, it just is. And you've not been listening like these, like hundreds of years. And so, you know, it's it's an expression of that as well. And like I said, that's not to condone it. That's to say, I get it. Because when I see the man shot seven times in in his back in front of his babies, that's what I feel. I don't do it. I can, but I'm, but that feeling is real, you know. And and so, you know, when I see the man get, you know, with a knee on his neck and and I can't breathe, and I, I hear you. I, that's what I feel like. And so, that's that that expression is real. And it's interesting that instead of dealing with what is the catalyst for the expression, you villainize the expression itself and make that be precisely the point. precisely what I mean by hijacking yeah there. but anyway i'm sorry no no that's exactly i you said it far better than i could have and i think that i'm most disturbed by uh you know the current administration's blindness to mm-hmm. that factor that um and 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 for that matter um you know people who believe that the answer is more forceful law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad to have learned so much, Montega, from your explanations. You you said something about the 
I'm going to now just try to paraphrase you, but it was something about it being a longstanding American tradition. Um, and, you know, just as David is saying, the institutional racism that has been going on for centuries, uh, we darn well better expect that to bubble up in ways that um, have a little bit more chaos than a you know, candlelight vigil. Uh, so even as a white person, I, I, I can understand the expression and of, of the consternation and anger that's just been building up and building up for people. Um, and I also think it's so awesome that I'm sure, and I'm sure you've encountered a lot of obstacles and a lot of resistance, but that if we can nurture the best parts of democracy, then you and others who do similarly important work in supporting movements will have a voice that won't be uh, that won't be censored or uh, mm -hmm. you know like we sometimes see and recently saw in other countries that won't be you know if you're an opposition leader you won't be poisoned or assassinated mm -hmm. or right. you know I I'd love for you to close us out with what your hope for this this country is because I think you've seen it at its its best and its worst. Mm -hmm. My hope uh, is in part that we can marshal folks' imaginations and their dreams for what's possible to create space for people to thrive and to to live um, more freely than we thought possible. Um, the folks who who frame what's been, what we're putting forward called the Breathe Act, we think of that as a 21st century civil rights amendment, a civil rights act. Um, and the hope is that as we begin to divest from a mindset uh, of this kind of policing our people, um, not just black people, but all the bodies that end up in cages, um, mm. that it creates space for us to begin to build a better life for folks. Mm. Like, even if you actually are adjudicated to be guilty, like, you still deserve to be restored. You still deserve to be yeah. part of community. You, you still deserve to, to be healthy, and the community should be healthy. Um, so the hope is that on the other side of this, whenever that lands, that, that we're entering this portal that 2020 has become, um, that, yeah, we, we create more freedom, not only for ourselves, but for our children. Oh, God bless you. Very nice. Very nice. Very well said. Hey, Amen. Thank you very much uh, for your insights and uh, for giving us a lot to think about and to chew on. Um, and I, I thought it was a great discussion, one of the better ones we've had. Uh, I got a lot of things out of it as I always do when we talk so I'm you know tradition holds and uh so that's cool I appreciate you and um you know I think as long as we uh keep acting like and I say we as you know America because we either uh, united or we're not but as long as we as America keep acting like black lives don't matter it's very difficult to then turn around and and try to belittle that 
that declaration, mm-hmm. you know, and, and change it. You you say in your actions that it does not matter, but then you turn around and say, well, you know, hey, uh, don't say that because, you know, all lives matter, but the only ones you keep kicking in the teeth okay. are, the, are the, these particular people. So, That's you know, we got to start listening to each other and we got to start trying to um, excite these imaginations like what you're talking about. And so... I appreciate you, brother, and so thank you very much, Chris. Yeah, and uh, Montega Simmons, we're so grateful that uh, for your candor and for your time. You mentioned several things that we'll post as links um, on YouTube, and um, if people want to learn more about Breathe Act, if people want to learn more about the other work that you do, that's where they can go. And for folks listening to this um, on a podcast, we encourage you to go over to YouTube and look at um, the channels where David and I post, look at the webinar version of this so you can also have access to the hyperlinks. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing and please uh, promise us that you'll come back and be a guest again because there's so much more to talk about. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening to I'm Black, You're White, Now What? You can find more episodes on the podcast channel Teaching What It Takes, available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. To learn more about the work I do, visit www.preparingthepath.com. And to learn more about the work I do, visit drchristhurber.com. 